With the news media covering increasingly more news about data breaches and security, and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks, and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor, we are here to help you mitigate potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Hello, and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host, and I'm so happy you're joining us. Welcome to the third episode of my show. I'm really excited to have this platform to continue one of my passions, which is raising the awareness of information security and privacy risks and issues, and also providing listeners with practical tips and actions to help improve information security and also to better protect the privacy of your clients, your customers, patients, employees, your family, your friends, and, well, of course, yourself. I really love doing this show. It gives me a chance to speak in depth with folks I've long wanted to have a deep discussion with about their careers, their work, and really learn more about their experiences. And then you also get the benefit of learning along with me. Today, I'm speaking with our guest about a topic that really first came into my awareness when I was a very, very young child watching Rocky and Bullwinkle. Of course, I didn't realize it fully at that time, but as I've gotten older and I learn more about nation-state espionage activities and hacking that occurs from groups in Russia, China, North Korea, and of course other countries, I sometimes think, aha, this is like what Natasha and Boris were doing way back when. A couple of Years ago, I spent several hours in the Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. It's it's really a fascinating place. I was so intrigued by seeing and learning about the many ways in which data was stolen from enemy states from centuries ago up through today and how secrets were shared via passenger pigeons and how they were actually captured through camera-wearing pigeons in World War I and also through steganography and how conversations were secretly recorded using tiny microphones hidden in pens and even in guns. Throughout my career, I've often encountered hacking and spying situations for the organizations for which I was managing information security and privacy programs. Now, today, I still help organizations defend against those who want to take their data and those who want to steal their intellectual property and trade secrets. I've helped local governments to secure their voting systems to make sure elections cannot be tampered with. 
But we have an abundance of information to validate that, yes, there still are ongoing attempts from other countries, from Russia, from China, from Middle Eastern countries and more that want to access data in the U.S. And we also know that they are using hundreds of thousands of online bots to spread propaganda and so on. Now, speaking of bots, in late January of this year, documents from Facebook were released showing that Russia had made at least 129 phony event announcements on that platform alone during the 2016 presidential campaign and and that they were retweeted or shared by over 340,000 of their users. And now Twitter has identified over 60,000 Russian bots tweeting various types of political propaganda. So we have expanded very quickly into nation-state propaganda being shared throughout popular online outlets and social media sites. And we also know that um, there are various types of government activities going on to surveil and try to gather data to help protect the U.S. in addition to learning insights into specific individuals in the U.S. So so what, if anything, is being done to fight these attempts from other nation states? Our guest today is the perfect person to enlighten us about these activities and the various government agencies that are working to protect U.S. interests against cyber attacks and espionage. Christopher Burgess is a writer, speaker, and commentator on security issues. Christopher is a former senior security advisor to Cisco, and he served over 30 years within the CIA which awarded him the Distinguished Career Intelligence Medal upon his his retirement. Quite an honor. Christopher also co-authored the book, Secrets Stolen, Fortunes Lost, Preventing Intellectual Property Theft and Economic Espionage in the 21st Century. I really encourage you to read it. It's fascinating and it's full of real-life examples and also many recommendations for how information security controls could have been used to prevent or defeat so many of the hacking events. So, Christopher, I'm happy to speak with you about this important topic today. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me, Rebecca. It's my pleasure to be here. Well, I'm so happy to find out so much more. So, you've definitely seen a lot, I'm sure, throughout your years at the CIA. So, let's start by first learning more about not only your longtime employer, the CIA, but also the other U.S. intelligence agencies. You know, what is the purpose of all those U.S. intelligence agencies? We often see people talking about this online, and are they really trying to do all 
the same things, basically get all the data that they can about people? Are they doing it with disregard to the related privacy risk to the associated individuals? Or, you know, really, what are the goals of all these different ones? Please enlighten us. <laughs> well, <laughs> in, in, in a perfect world, every, every member of the intelligence community has its own mission. Uh, for example, the Defense Intelligence Agency is focused on those intelligence matters dealing with our military and our defense posture, while the Secret Service, uh, a part of the Department of Treasury, is focused on protecting the president and the currency of the United States. You know, whenever there's counterfeiting uh, of currency, it's the Secret Service. Whenever there's a financial crimes, Secret Service gets involved. And then you have the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI. Uh, they have the mandate for domestic security and and their intelligence arm looks at the counterintelligence side of the equation which is basically the spy catchers if you will that's their mission domestically uh, overseas the FBI has a presence through their legal attaches which are at various embassies around the world and they're there to liaise with uh, governments uh, abroad on criminal matters as well as provide support when a crime has been committed against the United States. And then uh, we have the, the CIA. Uh, Central Intelligence Agency is the foreign intelligence arm of the United States government. It has no mandate in the United States. Its mandate is abroad. Its uh, purpose is to uh, acquire information, to uh, effectively inform the decision makers of the United States. It is part of the executive branch. Thus, the director of CIA is appointed by the president. Interesting. Now, yes. Now, you asked, are they out there to collect all the data there is about all the people? Well, uh, if you were to believe the, the press, and uh, there's no reason not to uh, in this regard, you know, the National Security Agency has a, uh, is a great siphon if you will. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's been well documented through uh, the various leaks over time that they, they suck in a lot of global information. And it's, it's available. Indeed, there's uh, a, a great deal of discussion around the use of the FISA court, which is the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act court mechanism by which the uh, various members of the law enforcement community that would be the Department of Justice and the FBI, can petition for a surveillance warrant to look at information about U.S. persons. And I say U.S. persons because that also includes U.S. citizens as well as lawful permanent residents of the United States. So if you're a U.S. person, uh, to be surveilled by the FBI for intelligence matters, it needs to go through the FISA court. And so that's the discussion we've been seeing recently in the press mm -hmm. uh, and the memo that is uh, being discussed this day mm -hmm. is about did the FBI exceed their brief with respect to FISA? Now, with the CIA, CIA doesn't, isn't part of that FISA uh, arena. What the CIA does is it collects information from sources. And mm -hmm. sources and methods are something that... Uh, are not discussed publicly, uh, but those that have already been revealed may be discussed. And so how do they do it? They do it by uh, getting close to people who have the answers, uh, 
to pending questions to keep the world safe and then allowing that individual to provide that information to the United States. Well, it sounds like then uh, they are good at social engineering, right? (laughs) If they're getting close to people and getting them to provide that information to them. Well, interesting you should say that because uh, that is absolutely what keeps Hollywood in business. Uh, (laughs) The reality is that while uh, having social engineering skills is uh, absolutely of great utility, the absolute best sources are those that present themselves as volunteers. Mm. And thus, there's no social engineering required, but there is a great deal of effort to keep them safe as they provide a continuous flow of information. Some famous cases, uh, to make my point, is Penkovsky. Uh, during the, uh, the the beginning of the Cold War, who provided uh, information that prevented the Cuban Missile Crisis turning into an atomic war. So then he came to the CIA to because he was concerned for basically the lives of the planet. Is that why? What? Well, he he presented himself first to British intelligence, and the British brought the CIA in. But yes, he was concerned that the world was going to be destroyed by the the Russians because they would would make poor decisions with respect to their nuclear arsenal. And there have been many others during the Cold War that would present themselves and say, look, what my country is doing— is wrong or is not in the best interest of my family or myself. And I would like to provide you this information in exchange for whatever floated their boat. Now, that, that's the Cold War. Cold War ended years and years and years ago. So what, do, what motivates folks now? Well, the economy. You know, if you look in the uh, a great many areas of the world, the economies uh, of those countries are underwater or not as uh, the opportunities being provided to family members, et cetera, are uh, in education and employment, et cetera, are not as robust as they may have been 10 to 15 years ago. And so you, what you'll find is people will volunteer to share information that they feel is of value, and if it is of value to any intelligence agency, this is not unique to the Central Intelligence Agency, then they will start a relationship. Uh, This is the quid pro quo, if you will, of information exchange. What floats a person's boat? Once the boat is floated, then the sharing of information can go forward. What gets tricky is that Some information, it's like uh, fairies on the head of a pin. There's only room for one source, and everybody knows it, so you have multiple countries trying (laughs) trying to talk to the same person because everyone wants to know what the president of XYZ country is thinking. Right. Well, well, how did you get started then? I mean, this all sounds so intriguing and, you know, so exotic, really, you know, <laughs> dealing with all of these other countries. How did you get started at the CIA? Was it your plan to uh, have a career there or did something specific happen that took you there? 
Well, uh, seeing how this is a, a longer program, I'll tell the whole story. Oh, awesome. <laughs> so, uh, I, uh, university and I did not match. We were just a bad fit. Uh-oh, you, so, were a bad, you were a bad college student? No, uh, no. I, I was a dropout, very early, very early dropout. And so, I was, I was working and going to school at night. Uh, I was working for a bank at the time, going to school at night, living with my parents at the ripe age of 18, 19. And around uh, right after I turned, I guess it was 19, my father, uh, who had served in Vietnam uh, with the Agency for International Development uh, while I was a child, and I I was living uh, also in Southeast Asia at the time, introduced me to a gentleman we'll call Bob. And Bob was the head recruiter for the Central Intelligence Agency's recruiting office that was across the street from my dad's office. And my dad knew this gentleman because they both were in Vietnam at the same time. And occasionally they would play cribbage during lunch. And they had no professional relationship, just a personal personal one. And so my dad wa- said one day when I stopped for lunch with him, he goes, hey, we're going to take a walk. And he walks me into this uh, recruiting office, and there's waiting Bob. And I get introduced to Bob as this is Christopher, my number four son, and he's different. <laughs> and what, what, what he meant by that was, yes, indeed, I am his number four son. And his first three sons were all State Department officers. And so they were all foreign service officers serving their country in their way. My father had been with the Agency for International Development. And so this vagabond existence was already in my blood. But uh, my father understood I was different. So Bob sat down and said, what do you want to do? And you're 19. What the hell do you know about what you want to do? And so, you know, I said something uh, uh, very smart, I'm sure. And he handed me uh, a form, which was a personal history questionnaire. At that time, 45 pages. Now it's 125 pages. Holy cow. (laughs) And, you know, you you, you attest to all the things you did wrong in your life. And at 19, my list was short. Uh, And you, you send that in, you send your application in, and lo and behold, 11 months later, <laughs> I get a phone call asking if I would like to be a file clerk. Oh. And I took the job. I became a file clerk within the CIA, starting at the very bottom of the organization. And at that time, I had no career plans. But uh, what I found is that the, the CIA is a uh, employer of great opportunity. And so through my 30 plus years, I was had the pleasure of serving in all four directorates of the CIA, uh, having uh, advanced from the file clerk to uh, exiting as the chief of station within the directorate of operations. And that was my last directorate in which I served. And that director of operations was my, like my forever home. Well, then how did you get into your first computer-related project then? Because it sounds like that wasn't where you even came from. Um, Well, uh, being a file clerk required uh, very extensive skills. You had to know A through Z and zero through nine. (laughs) (laughs) And you had to keep a secret. I mean, that that was the most important skill set. Well, I excelled at all three of those. And there was an opportunity to uh, move over to telecommunications because there was a shortage of radio operators because during that time, I am as old as I'm about to sound, uh, they were still using Morse code and radio telegraphy. 
and one-time pad encryption and one-time tape encryption. And the, uh, the advent of uh, uh, electrical and mechanical encryption devices, you know, had started during the Second World War, you know, with the Enigma machine that uh, everyone knows about from Germany and the uh, breaking of the Japanese codes, etc. But there was still a lot of places that use one-time pad and one-time tape, as well as radio communications. And there was a shortage of qualified operators coming out of the out of the uh, services, and thus they started an internal program. They took twenty of us and taught us how to be radio operators. And so, for the next ten years, uh, I did radio communications, uh, cryptography, mm-hmm. and one-time tape, one-time pad encryption, Morse code. Got to uh, serve in exciting places around the world to do that. Uh, And that's where I stumbled on my first computer project, which was I automated one-time pad for the United States government. And what I did was, uh, it was during the era that the first home computers were coming out, the the Commodore 64, the TRS-80, and... Uh, the, these big clunkers were showing up in industry. Uh, one brand was Delta Data uh, that folks might remember. They were big brown machines and used eight-inch uh, floppies. And you could program, you can write these massive programs as long as it fit in uh, 16K. Uh, <laughs> and so I wrote a, uh, a program that was used for one-time pad in the U.S. government, uh, which required the NSA to give us crypto key electronically. But once they did that, uh, basically my program removed errors during the one-time pad encryption because the key was in inside the, the uh, device already electronically. And all you had to do is type in your, your message. It would do a transliteration either into numbers or into characters, and then it would do the false subtraction or the the uh, uh, in- encryption, that the manual encryption that the operators were doing, and lo and behold, it was being done error-free, and that little program ran for 19 years. Wow, and how many people ran that? I mean, everyone within the CIA? No, it was in the telecommunications area, and here's where I learned about the consequences of one's actions. So I thought of this, and I thought this was just the greatest thing in the world, because what do I know? I'm 22 years old at the time, and I'm saying, look, technology can do this. What this program did is it put 27 people out of work. Oh, because, because they were doing they it were the ones that were doing the manual one-time ah. pad encryption, and now their their work was no longer required, and so that was when I first understood the that there was a tail end to every action, and sometimes the unintended consequences were not what you expected, mm-hmm. and that was here I created something. It was to keep information safe because we both know that one-time pad encryption is the most secure as long as the key isn't reused. Mm-hmm. But what I didn't realize is that I put some of my very close colleagues out of work. Well, you, they, they were put out of work for what they were doing, but hopefully 
you know, I mean, as technology continues to expand and evolve, that's going to happen. Were they given other opportunities? I mean, uh, some of them didn't have other opportunities to be given. Oh, okay. And and so it was it was one of those bittersweet. You know, you're very proud of your achievement because you know you're 23, you invented something, but then you're very, you know, you're you're, you're sad that the the technology advanced and, and basically ran over some folks. Right, right. Well, you mentioned, I want to hit on something that you said earlier. You said that you were working all over the the world in some very interesting locations. What would you consider to be the most interesting or maybe challenging or maybe exotic, whatever? What's the most interesting location where you actually went to to do work then? I I would say uh, the Soviet Union. Oh, that sounds very interesting. Where I spent six years. Uh, was probably the most interesting and challenging of uh, all of uh, my uh, 30-year career. You know, one-fifth of my uh, career was spent in the Soviet Union. Which part? I mean, were you up in the really, really snowy, frigid parts? Or no, you- I, I, I lived in uh, St. Petersburg and Moscow. Oh, okay, okay. And they were both uh, very snowy and frigid, uh, both temperature-wise as well as politically speaking. So, did you learn how to speak Russian fluently? Well, again, uh, I I showed up in uh, St. Petersburg in the, the uh, early 1980s. Uh, again, by accident, somebody got sick and needed they needed a replacement, and I raised my hand and into Russia we went. And I arrived in Russian. I didn't even know the Cyrillic alphabet, uh, but I was a warm body. I had a temperature of 98.6. I could do the job that was asked of me, and we'll figure out how you're going to live there later. Uh, so <laughs> that's how I ended up there. When I left, yes, I could speak Russian, I could read Russian, but uh, not not as not as well as somebody who actually went to school and learned Russian. Okay, well, uh, we're going to hear probably- more about this. <laughs> we got a break coming up here, so I don't want to interrupt you. But when we come back, I want to get into some more of the the surveillance uh, types of activities that you've done throughout the years. So um, before we leave, I want to let our listeners know that we're speaking with Christopher Burgess, a former senior security advisor to Cisco and also a 30-plus year veteran of the CIA. You can reach Christopher on Twitter using at BurgessCT, B-U-R-G-E-S-S-C-T on Twitter. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the privacy professor. You can contact me with questions and comments about the show as well as provide show topic suggestions using my email, RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com and also through my website, Simbus360.com, PrivacyProfessor.org and my LinkedIn site. Please stay with us. Christopher has so many more stories to share, and we're going to start digging into some of the details of the surveillance and other types of issues. We will be right back. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. 
The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy, and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyprofessor.org. Rebecca Harold and Associates offers information security products, privacy, and compliance tools, education, and consulting. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages. She has published since 2007. Visit privacyprofessor.org for help and answers to your questions. Have you heard about Symbus360.com? The Symbus system includes information security, privacy, and compliance management, policies, procedures, and forms, third-party and vendor management, training and awareness, breach response and management, employee tasks and assets management, and risk management automation. Symbus also offers Alien Vault Unified IT Security Management at reduced pricing and also cyber liability insurance with limits up to $25 million. You need to find out more about the Symbus system. Visit Symbus360.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. If you have a question or comment about the program, feel free to send an email to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. That's Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. Welcome back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor on Voice America's Business Channel. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold. Today we are talking with Christopher Burgess, a former senior security advisor to Cisco and also a 30-plus year veteran of the CIA. Now, before we went to the break, we talked about how Christopher got into working for the CIA and some of the different areas where he's worked within the CIA. Let's now continue that conversation, but let's start getting into the hacking and the espionage. So, Christopher, throughout your career with the CIA, how have you seen the actual nation-state hacking activities and methods change and espionage espionage change throughout your career? Well, uh, this will be a great disappointment. Uh, espionage has not changed since uh, the second century. Uh, uh, ben Franklin uh, put it best, if uh, three people want to keep a secret, two of them should be dead. Uh, and that that's reality. That, uh, you can have the best technology in the world, but you will always need humans. And humans are the weakest link. And thus, the best hacks are just recruiting the people that are on the other side of the technology. Uh, thus, my entire career, once I uh, entered the uh, Directorate of Operations, was always on the human side of the equation, which was looking at individuals with access to information. And that is what uh, you, your uh, nefarious companies, those that uh, have uh, parked their scruples at the door, that's what nation states do, looking at companies as well as at uh, other nations. Uh, they're always looking for the weakest link, and the weakest link will be a person. 
And so the advances in technology uh, clearly are there. You know, we, we've heard of the, uh, the breach of the Office of Personal Management where 22 million records on individuals with security clearances to the United States government were breached. And we believe those went to China. And thus, China has this, uh, you know, big database where they're building mosaics on international uh, targets of interest. And that's what intelligence services do. You're always looking for that ferry that sits at the end of the pin that will have information that will keep your country safe. Well, and I'm, you know, I'm glad you brought that up, though, when you said that nothing's really new under the sun, because something that kind of frustrates me in recent years is when you hear information security folks say, oh, well, the things that you knew 10 years ago no longer apply. And I always think, well, my goodness, yes, they do apply as far as the concepts go and, you know, the various uh, issues involved. Everything still applies. Only difference is that now you have new types of technologies, perhaps, for exploiting the weaknesses of those humans, as you say. So, um, well, what- the reason fish works so well as the lever uh, to accessing information is because it's got the human element mm-hmm. where by, by nature, individuals want to be helpful, they want to be cooperative, and thus when somebody calls in urgently and says, hi, this is VP so-and-so uh, uh, in sales and I'm about to go into a meeting with this client and my computer just crashed and all I have is my uh, handheld. I need you to send me the employee directory right now so that I can give the contact data to my contacts here. Send it to my personal e- email address. And they've made up a personal email address using one of the web hosting services that has the exact name of the person they're spoofing the operator at the end of the phone goes, oh, my goodness, you know, here's somebody I, I need to help the company right now. And boom, the directory is out the door. Well, and I'm glad you brought that up because I've, I've been seeing that and experiencing that myself throughout my career. The fact that the call centers and the help centers, they they get training for how to bend over backwards to do whatever it takes to make the callers happy, right? To, right. To give them assistance, but yet what information security requires is that you have to have a certain level of, um, you know, (laughs) questioning, is this really the person who they say they are? And what's some red flags? Precisely, Rebecca, precisely. And you can have both. You can be absolutely helpful, but... You can also have red lines by which you do not advance. I'm sorry. I can't send that information to a personal email account. I will send it to your employee account. Right. Boom. Right. You're, you're being helpful. Uh, and, you know, they, they might explode because the con person will explode because they want you to do it. Uh Nonetheless, you can have the best of both worlds by training your your people to where the limits are and what can and cannot be shared. But as you say, training folks is expensive. You know, what are we? What do we have to lose, etc. From my my perspective, if you want to know what's going on inside a company, go talk to somebody in HR. Yeah, definitely. 
Um, <laughs> you'll find out a lot, right? Well, and then, <laughs> exactly. And then look at social media now. So what do you see? I mean, as you see the expansion of different types of nation state hacking, you know, at the beginning of the show, I talked about how now we have all of these fake I- identities. We have all of these bots and we validated right. they're coming from Russia. They're coming from China. They're coming from other countries and they're going out there. They're taking the identities of real people. They're making up just identities on the fly. Uh, do you see that as a do you see that being used social media and, and different online activities? As I, the I, I've written about this extensively as well as commented uh, on a, a number of media outlets. The, the Russian disinformation uh, or active measures, that's the formal word for their uh, their activities, is uh, renowned. It's been in place since 1917. They they just changed the labels on the doors when they transitioned from the USSR to Russia. They are expert at keeping the dialogue going in such a manner that it foments discontent, fear, unknown, doubt. We know this in the InfoSec world as FUD, but in the political world, as we saw in 2016... It created a divisiveness within our own country in, on the back of the elections by creating doubt around the elections, and that was their ultimate goal. And how do we know this? Because we have seen some of the prosecutions and arrests of hackers that came out of Russia, and there was one gentleman, oh, I forget his name right now, he was working uh, on on behalf of the FSB, which is the Russian Intelligence Security Services, and he was... uh, uh, and they arrested him for espionage, and he was indicted and wanted as a uh, one of uh, the most wanted by the Department of Justice. And it's very rare that you get two two separate entities that want to arrest the same guy for <laughs> for breaching. And this is the gentleman who was behind the big Yahoo breach. Mm, okay. And and think about that: one billion email mm. accounts. What can I? What can you learn? If what could I learn about you if I could read your email every day? And I think that's a great point because when people hear about those one billion accounts, they think it's just the email address itself. They don't realize it's the communications there, right? It is. It, it, they had access so that they could access your email. Mm -hmm. They could read your email. Having your email address is nothing. You give that away every day. Right. You probably have it on a business card, but having your email address and your password and your your, uh, second factor of authentication and your answers to your um, uh, challenge questions, Mm -hmm. uh, well, if I have access to your account, I have all that, don't I? Oh, exactly. I mean, you could learn about someone's life on a a minute-by-minute basis, I mean, people talk about the most intimate things within their email, right? I've heard that's the case. (laughs) (laughs) We've seen that. It's in the news all the time. So, well, where do you see? I mean, of course, one of the things with technology, I, I love encryption. Encryption is one of, strong encryption is one of the best ways to protect those communications. But we see so few people using 
encryption, especially in email, uh, I see that as a, a huge vulnerability. What do you see as some of the the vulnerabilities beyond the the human factor? What do you see as some of our other vulnerabilities in our current technologies being used? The lack of use of two-factor authentication or right. multi-factor authentication. It, it, it's available. It's easy to implement. It should be on all your accounts. Um, even though it's been shown through uh, scientific research, the security researchers have shown that 2FA that sends a, uh, a SMS message to you has, uh, can be spoofed. It still is better than not having anything for the less technically inclined. You know, there are, there are a lot of technologies that are just too advanced for the small-medium business. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they don't have enough hours in the day to understand this, let alone implement it, because they're just trying to keep their heads afloat. Mm-hmm. And, and I totally get that. And so my advice, and I'm, I'm going to uh, put words in your mouth, I venture yours is as well, is let's put in place the best security we can that meets your, that is within your resources mm-hmm. as well as within your ability to maintain it. Because having that vault inside my house, but I don't know how to spin the combination, means it's useless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and thus, uh, the weakest link I see in the InfoSec world, and this is from the business world, is that people are trying to sell one, one-stop shopping by using loss leaders. You know, I'll give you this, and then I'm going to make money on you on that, Mm -hmm. instead of just offering up simple solutions that are easy to use by the small, medium businesses, because, well, frankly, companies want the enterprise market. The small, medium businesses, I think, are being left out. Oh, they are. They are uh, way too much. And just a quick note, too, for our listeners, for those of you, 2FA is two-factor authentication, and SMS is referencing the fact that you're sending text messages, basically. So uh, for those of you who might not have recognized those, uh, we have a very wide range of listeners, which I appreciate very much. I will define my acronyms going forward. No (laughs) worries. No worries. So I think encryption is easy to use. If you've got a Windows box, it's built in. If you've got a Mac, it's built in. You should be using those. Yeah, yeah. Use encryption. Use strong encryption. Well, so we're talking about, you know, tools, security tools. There's been a lot in the last year about uh, security tools coming from other countries and whether or not we should use them. So, of course, we have a lot of security tools coming from China from Russia. In fact, from Russia, you I know you've read all of the different uh, articles and discussions about the Kaspersky security tools. And Kaspersky's been around for many, many years providing security tools. But, you know, that's a Russian-based company. So what do you think? I mean, I don't know if that's... I, I have written many of those articles of, about which you speak. <laughs> oh, great. Well, then let us know. You know, what do you think about using Kaspersky and, you know, are they really assisting their governments and are they making back holes into their tools? Let, let me, before I start talking about Kaspersky, let me set the stage here. And, okay. and, and I call this the Maslow chart of um, loyalty or trust. An individual will 
be loyal to themselves first, their family second, their country third, and their employer last. Okay. <laughs> Sounds about right. Yeah. All right. And, you know, may, maybe they like their company more than their country. You know, it depends on, you know, what day of the week. I bet you could walk out your door and, and get people to flip-flop both of those. But they would all say that if, I need to take care of me and my family. Mm-hmm. That, that comes first. So here we have Kaspersky, an excellent product. They are sitting in Russia. They are a Russian company. The founder had, uh, well, he, he went to school at a KGB uh, institute. That's, that's not a big deal from my perspective. What's a bigger deal is that they sit in Russia. They are the only accredited security company for the Russian networks. Accredited by Russia. The Russians, right? absolutely. Yeah. They've let, uh, and, and in recent uh, months, uh, actually, now we can go back over a year, uh, the the FSB, that's the uh, foreign or the domestic security and intelligence arm of the Russian intelligence apparatus, arrested six individuals for espionage from within their cybersecurity group. Within Kaspersky. No, and one of them was a senior manager at Kaspersky. And when you say senior manager, for our listeners, this is a company that that builds security tools. So if they're a senior manager, they might have been overseeing how those tools were built. Well, in this case, his his area of expertise were databases Mm -hmm. and uh, the small, medium business. Uh, Now... The Russians arrested him, so they was doing something that was not inimical to the, the Russian perspective. But the fact of the matter is that he was also in charge of the liaison between Kaspersky and, it is my understanding, that he was in charge of the liaison between Kaspersky and the FSB. And here's the important point. Mm-hmm. Many, many, many companies, when a, their government knocks at their door, we'll, we'll have that conversation, Right. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in France, you know that the French government is knocking on Airbus's door. In the United States, they probably knock on the door of companies here as well. In Russia, they have inducements that we don't use in the United States. <laughs> well, inducements mean threats or... <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah. They make you, op- they give you opportunities you cannot refuse to help. And, and thus... Uh, it was January of last year, I believe it was, where you had all of the leaders of the major intelligence organizations and the director of national intelligence before Congress, and they were asked the pointed question, would you use Kaspersky's product? And all six of them, one by one, went, no, 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 no. Ah. And then we fast forward 11 months or so, and we see that very quietly, GSA shoves, that's the government service organ, uh, agency, uh, I'm sorry, government service administration, they handle all the contracting within government. Mm-hmm. They pushed Kaspersky off the approved list. And thus, that was the beginning of Kaspersky is barred from use in the United States government. Ah, interesting. Then now, more recently, and this more recent, I mean, last week, we saw where AT and T stepped back from their deal with Huawei, the Chinese telecommunications giant, 
mm-hmm. who has long been rumored to have close and continuing relationships with Chinese intelligence apparatus and the People's Liberation Army. Uh, by den of their founder coming out of the People's Liberation Army, uh, left the army with a, uh, apparently sufficient funds to start the company. And, and thus, you have a it, it, parastatal situation in a lot of Chinese companies as well as Russian companies that allow them to have a hand in government. And my most recent writings has been largely about how China has been eating the U.S.'s lunch and those of other Western nations through the use of technology, through the use of uh, human espionage, and through the use of bona fide above-board acquisitions. For example, a Chinese company last two weeks ago just completed the acquisition of social networking site Grindr. Have you heard oh, of Grindr? I, I have heard of it, yes. I've okay. seen people talking so, about it. So now, it's, uh, for our listeners, I would say, and correct me if I'm wrong, we could call this um, a type of dating site. It, it is the it is the number one dating site for the gay population of the world. Three million users a, a day, and now all of that data that's in Grinder, including the intra ch- intra app chats, are sitting on servers sitting in China because it's owned by a Chinese company. All the chats, all the conversations, that- everything. I just today or yesterday, I I wrote an article on what could possibly go wrong. You know, yeah. and you, you add that to the hacks of the Ashley Madison website. You add that to the hack of the Equifax website. You add that to the OPM data breach. Now you start getting the idea that little by little, you know, pretty soon you end up with beautiful dossiers mm-hmm. on people where their, their most delicate secrets are located. And you think about the hacks uh, in the healthcare world. And our knee-jerk reaction is, okay, ransomware. Yeah, they want to ransom it, but they also want to harvest it. Because if I have all your medical data, I know a lot more about you that I can use to either entice you or to ruin you. So it's going to be used or it can be used and it has been used as leverage to get you to do what? Someone else wants and, and not necessarily le- leverage in a coercive manner, mm-hmm. just to make the approach more uh, inviting to you. You know, right. for example, if I know you have a daughter that has cancer and you're going bankrupt, mm-hmm. because I, look around, how, how many of our neighbors are one illness away from bankruptcy? Right. Uh, boom. Their, their boats are floated when somebody shows up and says, look, there's this uh, experimental treatment over here. Uh, your daughter looks like she's a good candidate. Would you be interested in this? And oh, by the way, I'll cover your other medical bills. And all you have to do is share what's going on in your company. Yes. Yeah. I mean, when people are desperate, when they want their loved ones to have care, that sounds like a pretty When you pretty sold everything else and the only thing you have left is your employment, Right. Well, it, it, it's not a diff. It it's not difficult to understand. It occurs, mm-hmm. and companies can take steps to uh, avoid it occurring by being more engaged with their employees and providing them with this level of support so that this these situations don't happen. 
Right, right. And, you know, before we move on to my next question for you, um, you did mention that you've written about this uh, several times. So can you uh, tell our listeners where they can see your writings? What, sure. what is the URL for that? Sure. BurgessCT.com is, is where I have my archive of uh, writing. Uh, just go there. Click on the archive and you'll see, you know, I think it was like 270 uh, articles last year. Oh, wow. So they can go there and find all sorts of very good things. <laughs> yeah. In- InfoSec, nation states, uh, insider threat, it's all there. Excellent. Excellent. Well, we're, we're getting closer to the end of the show sure. here. But before we go, what do you think is the one thing that's really important for the general public and for businesses and other types of organizations in general to know about the surveillance activities that the government's using, the technologies they're using, the data they're using to do all of this nation state type of, you know, um, espionage or activities. I mean, what is something you would tell them to to keep in mind or c- caution them about? Um, everyone has heard of the Wayback Machine. It's a way to go and look how a website looked two, three, five, ten years ago. Those Wayback Machines exist in all governments. They have been siphoning the internet since the internet began back in the 1990s. Once posted, forever toasted should be your march word on personal information. (laughs) Same thing with information from companies. Protect your data. Make sure that you understand what's being pushed forward because anything that's out on your website, either being stored or being shared, is being scraped. And, and just because you're not in a defense industry doesn't mean that there is an interest from a nation on what you do. There are many countries that have limited economic uh, opportunities, and thus the nation is supporting those minor industries in any way they can because employed individuals in nations mean secure nations economically. And thus, the, the number one thing I see companies doing is no one would be interested in my information. Well, right. the fact of the matter is they're interested in you. They're interested in your information. And if you have a competitor, you have somebody who's interested. So the, the number one takeaway is anyone is of interest. If you're online, you're, on, you're of interest. Use your basic strong security controls. Absolutely. Use two-factor authentication. Use encryption. And don't think that you... No one is interested in you because if you, you don't get to choose who the target is, the yeah. people doing the targeting do. So I think that's a great um, a great thing to leave our listeners with today. So I, I hate to wrap this up because uh, we, we could talk about so much more and I'll have to have you back on again sometime, Christopher. But thank you so much for being on the show and, and providing us with insights on not only the U.S. intelligence agencies and nation state hacking and surveillance activities and so much more. We really appreciate it. It's been my pleasure, Rebecca. Thank you for having me. Thanks. We've been uh, chatting with Christopher Burgess today, a former senior security advisor to Cisco and 30-plus year veteran of the CIA, also co-author of the book Secrets Stolen, Fortunes Lost, 
preventing intellectual property theft and economic espionage in the 21st century. Get it. If you like like this topic, I know you're going to love the book. You can reach Christopher on Twitter using at BurgessCT. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the privacy professor, pursuing my goal to help all businesses and the general public, really, to be more aware of security and privacy risks and issues, and also to help you understand better how to mitigate those risks and better protect privacy. You can uh, contact me with questions, comments, and provide me with your show topic ideas using Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. You can also visit my YouTube channel, The Privacy Professor, to see my various appearances. So I urge you to notice and stay aware of information, security, and privacy issues as you go about your daily activities. If you have an idea for a topic, please send them to me. Uh, And until next time, be privacy safe in the week ahead. Goodbye and thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in this week. Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time and 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next week, stay safe. Thank you.